I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, how's that old song go? What the world needs now is glove, glove, glove. Man, the Rays flashed some leather at the Houston Astros on Monday. They made them pay for every mistake on the mound. The Rays win 4-2, beating Tampa's Lance McCullers. A big three-run homer and an amazing catch as he flipped over the rail in right field by Manuel Margot, who was the star of the game. We'll break down game two of the ALCS. The Rays now with a uh, two games to none lead, just two games away from representing the American League in, that's right, the World Series. Can you believe it? Tom Brady pokes fun at himself in congratulating King James and Raheem Morris is the new interim coach of the Atlanta Falcons. We've got all that and more to talk about on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. Hey, who's got the best party platters for your catering in Tampa Bay? Well, you know, it's Mr. Empanada. What the heck is an empanada? Well, here's what you do. You take your favorite foods and you place them inside a pocket of homemade dough that is cooked perfectly until it's golden brown and piping hot. Oh, man, their empanadas are a fresh twist on some old favorites. Order delicious menu items made from scratch, including soup, salads, and Cuban sandwiches online at MrEmpanada.com, or you can call any of their seven convenient locations in Tampa Bay. Where Latin food, quality, and service meet, it's Mr. Empanada. All right, Steve, so I watched this game with the Tampa Bay Rays, and let me just say that, uh, you know, what they are doing it seems as if they're the the most fortunate team in baseball right now because so many balls are peppered right at them. So many so many hard struck uh, baseballs, and, and they're always in position. And they and they've made some unbelievable plays, which is but that's what they're built on. They're built on pitching and defense, and it's not an accident. I mean, you know, all, for all the sabermetrics and thing that people talk about with respect to the matchups and the hitters and the pitchers, as much as anything, what they do is position their fielders perfectly. And it has worked like a charm in this series. I mean, the Houston Astros have to be incredibly frustrated because, frankly, um, you know, they've had overall better at-bats. They've had uh, a a ton of runners on base. Uh, They've stranded most of them, and that's a credit to the Rays pitching and defense. Um, But the Rays have just been opportunistic. And any time, in this case, uh, an early error by Jose Altuve, um, prolonged an inning with two outs, and then Boone, Manuel Margot, you know, hits a three-run homer, and all of a sudden they're down three to nothing. I'm telling you, Lance McCullers probably pitched as as well as he could. At one point, he retired, I think, like 14 in a row, and he certainly was out pitching Charlie Morton, who was in trouble almost every inning. But then, um, even after retiring that many in a row, here comes Mike Zanino after they had scored a run to give them a little more distance and make it four to one with a long home run to center field. So. This baseball team is really feeling itself. It's such a confident group, and they're playing to their brand. Everything they do is right, and you're going to have to beat them because they're just making play after play after play. 
you know, Houston has got to be frustrated because their t- starting pitching has been much better than the Rays' starting pitching in this series so far through no two question. games. Yeah. Valdez and McCullers have outpitched Snell mm-hmm. and Morton decisively. Now the, the error by yeah. Altuve and the Rays capitalized, and that's what good teams do. You give us an extra out, we're going to mm-hmm. take it. Um, I was showing that video to my son tonight, who you know he's just he's seven years old and playing baseball, and he likes to try to throw the ball sidearm sometimes, and you know, just you know, doing what kids do in a press. And I'm always telling him you got to step into the throw every time in this, and you know, showed him that mm-hmm. you know, look, that one error should have been the third out. They give up a three run home run. That's the ball game. I mean that that mm-hmm. was the game winning run right there. You didn't know it in the first inning at that point, mm-hmm. but you know, and how important it is, but. Mark Topkin had tweeted out, and this was from the Rays media notes, and, and there's been a lot of talk about whether one-run games, two-run games are lucky. Is it fluky? Between the regular season and postseason, or regular and postseason now, the Rays, um, 38 of their 69 games have been decided by two runs or fewer. That's 55% of their games. They're 28 mm. and 10 in those games. And 5-0 and in the postseason. I mean... They know how to – I mean, they play close games. They're comfortable with it. They 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 analyze everything down to exactly where – you know, how many times they go to a four-man outfield or three guys to one side. And, you know, I mean, they they are so good at that. And then, you know, look, it's no secret that they don't have the thick lineup that the Yankees have or the Astros have or the Dodgers have who are on now or the, the Braves. You know, they don't have that, but – they they pick their spots of when to play which guys against which matchups. They know how to position their defense. It's all about run prevention from them first. I mean, their pitchers and their defense is where it starts, and then it's the timely offense. And they've been getting it all season, and that's why you know they're two they're up two zero in the ALCS at this point. And what's striking about it is that um, of course they have to play this way. Then they're, they're not gonna, they're not typically a lineup that's going to go out and get you a ton of runs. So. Certainly, you know the way you compete is is to prevent the other team from scoring. But it's but you know their best hitter, Brandon Lau, is in the worst slump he could ever be in at the most inopportune time. I mean, the guy's batting like oh twenty something or oh fifty something. I don't know what it is down to now. Um, and but they're doing it. You know, I mean, they're the ninth place in their order in in these playoffs has been as productive as any anyone in the lineup. And there seems to be, as you said earlier, just a different sort of a different hitting star. Um, but they're all confident that they they can be the guy that comes through, and they haven't stranded many or any runners really on base. Um, not like not like the Houston Astros, who had just a ton of them, um, you know, again on Monday. But it is, I mean, the formula is working, and the plays that Joey Wendell made, diving to his left, uh, Willie Adamas with some some tremendous stops, and you know, uh, just. <laughs> All across the field, really, their outfield, the ability of Kevin Kiermeyer to go back on balls in center field. They hit a couple that were very close to getting out, but they didn't. Um, that could have cleared some bases. Uh, but but there's really there's really no weakness defensively. And, you know, G-Man Choi at first base is an incredible asset to their defense. You know, the way he's able to stretch and, and, and make some picks on some bad throws. Our good friend Les and, was and, just and, tweeting and, us today about how how he, Choi's become an excellent defensive first baseman. And, you know, going into last season, we all laughed that he was going to play a lot of first base. Right, right. But he's got really good – it turns out he's got really good feet. I know he's got a bad hamstring, but he's got really good feet. I don't know if he can run. 
Um, but he can stretch, and he's got good hands, and he, he picks a lot of balls for those infielders over there, and he did it again. So, you know, look, uh, they're up 2-0. That, that, if my math is right, that means uh, that would mean that the Houston Astros would have to win four of the next five games against the Rays and against that pitching staff and against that lineup. So um, they're definitely uh, taking control of this series so far. You know, Charlie Morton, I mean, he almost pitched the exact same game as Blake Snell. It, it was stunningly similar in that they were in trouble almost every inning. Pitch count was very high, but he, he got in and off the hook um, a bunch of times with really some just some balls that were laced at people. And, you know, he, he managed to get out of it with just with just the one run um, or no runs, actually. I don't think he gave well, – let's see, did he give up one run? He might have given up the home run. I can't remember. No, he didn't but give up any tonight. Regardless – he didn't have a bench. Fair, yeah, Fairbanks five gave up scoreless. the home run. Fairbanks gave it up. Yes, yeah, right. Fairbanks gave it the home run. So, I mean, overall, they you know they got their five from him. And, you know, this is the formula. And then the bullpen comes in, and it's been terrific. Now, I will say this, and, and I thought it was an interesting point that, that Ron Darling made. He said, you know, if you're going to get into this series, if you're going to win a series, um, the Houston Astros are going to have to beat their closer. They're going to have to go in there, down a run or so, and come back on them. And that closer – Traditionally, I mean, we've seen, you know, obviously the last couple games it's been Diego Castillo, but, we, you know, really it's it's Nick Anderson. And Anderson was a little shaky. He was a little shaky. His command was all over the place. He kept getting runners on base. They got very fortunate, um, you know, when uh, the ball was hit, you know, hard at Lau for a double play, another screaming, you know, sort of one hopper that he was able to step on second and throw to first for the double play even though a run scored to make it 4-2. to two. But um, they got out of it. And then the long fly ball to center field to Kiermaier ends it. And I'm telling you, and you know I said this at the beginning of the, of the spring, Steve, don't forget, this team's going to the World Series. Well, you said they were winning it, then they weren't making the playoffs, then they're winning it again. So, you know, you're going to be right. One well, of, one, one of that games. was only – I only jumped off for a very short time during that five-game losing streak. So <laughs> – Maybe it was four. I can't remember. But I got right back on. My ankles were broken. I got right back on that thing because I, I was right before I was wrong, and then I was right again. Um, look, I don't know how. I mean, I do know how they're doing it. It's They're much more talented than I even realized. Um, but, man, you know, Kevin Cash is pushing the right buttons. And, you know, he he knows that he's got to save his bullpen at times. He needs to get – these starters through at least five innings, it's hard to sit over there and watch, you know, ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four, and the leadoff guy gets on, and then there's a base hit, and it's first and second with nobody out or bases loaded with one out. That's a hard thing to sit through when you know that your team probably isn't going to score a ton of runs. Um, but he has stuck with those guys. He has made the changes when he needed to. They've all eventually come through, and the defense has, has you know, pitching and defense go hand in hand. So it's been remarkable to watch. I mean, they – they sure feel like, I mean, they feel like, and this is sort of what, you know, a couple of years ago in Houston, of course, they've been to four of these, but, you know, teams get a certain swag to them when they get to this level, right? And the first time through last year in the ALDS and, you know, who knows what happened there in game five and all of that in Houston, but they were starting to really feel themselves. And those games, you know, three and four at the Trop were magical. I mean, those were, you know, those were high intensity, um, just incredible playmaking by the Rays, and they wanted to get back there, and they wanted to taste that and feel that again. Well, they've taken the next step. This baseball team has taken the next step. 
And I think they're going to go back to the World Series and, you know, at least up 2-0, you certainly hope they do because otherwise that means they're going to lose four of the next five somewhere. You you find that with this team, you find it hard to believe that they could lose four out of five games. Although Houston does have a lineup that can do that to you. I mean, they have a lineup mm-hmm. that can put runs on the board in a hurry. And so and they're hitting. They're it, hitting the ball. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've been kind of – I won't say unlucky because I think a lot of it's the Rays – you know, doing the right things defensively and positioning. But, like I said, they have to be frustrated. They put their best two pitchers out there, and their best two pitchers outpitch the Rays starting pitching, and they've lost to no both. Doubt. Yeah, I, and, and, you know, uh, Dusty Baker keeps telling them that, you know, it's going to it's gonna crack. You know, you keep, you keep getting guys on like that. We're going to score. And you know what? Here's the thing. They will eventually. I mean, I don't think you can go an entire series – uh, a best of five and continue to get that many runners on base and not get them across the the Rays in many ways their pitching staff is playing with fire a little bit um, they've been good enough to get out of it their defense has been good enough to pick them up and that's what good baseball teams do but ideally you know you can't you can't let them leave 19 guys on base in two games I mean you know you just can't you can't put yourselves in those positions because sooner or later somebody's going to hit the big fly and then you're going to be down or they're going to come back and I don't – the one thing I, I don't trust, I mean, the Rays get a lead. The record is very, very good. They, they're they comfortable in close games because obviously they played a ton of them. They know how to win them. But I, if, I would not feel comfortable if I was the Rays and I found myself behind by four runs early in a game or three runs. You know, they don't, they don't seem explosive enough on offense to really make that happen. So, um, you know, getting ahead or keeping games close, one to nothing, tying one to one, like they won two to one the other night. They're they're very comfortable with that. What's been amazing through this, and of course, the Rays today got all their runs by home runs again. But they've only hit going into today's or Tuesday's or Monday's game one seventy four with men in scoring position this postseason. You know, that's mm. that's they they were they're seven for forty. This is from Jason Stark's column. They're seven for forty in the first three rounds of the playoffs. And for comparison's sakes, the Indians got eight hits with men in scoring position in two games, and they got swept in the first round. And the Rays have mm-hmm. had seven hit, you know, hits with runners in scoring position in the first three rounds of the playoffs. The, no, I, I don't. Uh, um, obviously, Margot got a hit today with runners in scoring position, so there was another one. But you know, it, it's it's so it's timely what they're doing. It, it's you know they're not they're not drawing up big numbers on the scoreboard. You know, today it was basically two home runs. That that was their runs. I mean, you had the three-run shot by Margot after the, the Altuve error and then the Zanino home run. Um, they're doing just enough to win, and their pitching and their defense is keeping them in the games. Yeah, I mean, almost all their runs are coming off of home runs in some form of fashion. Zanino with a big hit today was not a home run. They get a guy over in scoring position, but um, so many of them have been, and that's just not really what they're about necessarily. And that's what I mean. Like, and I don't know if, if you can flip the switch. God knows he's trying to. But if if you ever got Brandon Lau going, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, there's some hitters on this ball club. You know, Austin Meadows. Uh, you know, guys that they typically count on carrying them, sometimes for weeks at a time. They're in really n- not contributing mode offensively. Now, Lau's made some really good plays in the field, um, but if you got those guys going. Uh, and, and there's still plenty of time and, and plenty of baseball left before the World Series and beyond. You know, you wonder what they could do. Um, you know, thankfully for them, Randy Arozarena is as hot as anybody. 
in baseball. He's the best hitter in baseball right now. And so they benefited from, from some of the guys that, um, you know, typically when the, certainly when the season started, you weren't counting on him, and he's now become um, one of the best hitters in the game. So as long as that bullpen is – and that's the other thing. They have – and I don't know how many runners they've inherited, but let me tell you, they, no one's scoring on them, nobody. They are in shutdown, lockdown mode. I mean, you're, you're talking about a six- to seven-inning game, and it's pretty much over. You know, Castillo got the day off finally after his two saves, you know, uh, sort of back-to-back. And, um, you know, they did use they did use Anderson a bit. And, and, you know, it's seven games in seven days. So, you know, Kevin Cash has to be judicious with his, with you know, with his changes and how many times he gets guys up in the bullpen and that sort of thing. Um, but so far, the pitching has definitely held out, and I think it's deep enough to do that. You know, so it's it's a hell of a start for them. Uh, against a really good baseball team. Because Houston, look, I don't know what, you know, Altuve had a horrible game. He had two errors. Uh, he did hit a home run, but, um, you know, he's been struggling at the plate a little bit. But that's still a heck of a baseball team. I mean, they they basically play about 10 guys, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't change the lineup very much. And they're all really, really good players and really good hitters. And, you know, and that's why that's why they've given Rays pitching so, such a hard time. I mean, you you know, you have to get them out. They – Here's the, the conundrum for the Rays in this series. And we'll see what happens when we get to the Dodgers if, if that's who they play. But in this series, here's, been the, pro- here's the problem. They got a bunch of strikeout pitchers against a team that never strikes out. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens, right, in that scenario? Well, what happens is you've got hitters taking counts deep, you know, fouling pitches off, eight and nine, eight and nine pitch at bats and things like this. And, and most of the time, they're going to hit – something hard and you're gonna have to make a play and so far the Rays have made all the plays um but they're not striking a ton of people out and they're not going to against you know against this ball club so it's a it's a battle you know when the Rays are used to going out there with dominant stuff striking people out getting out of innings you know now it's 25 pitches 28 pitches you know and these guys are fortunate to pitch in and out of trouble but that's also experience you know Charlie Morton has been here so long um, in baseball and been played in so many of these big games um, that he continues to give his defense and continues to give his team a chance even when you know against what looks to be terrible odds bases loaded one out first and second nobody out inning after inning he pitches around the trouble and he gets some help um, but he doesn't panic and um, so that's key by the way have you seen a better catch than the one Margot's made Ooh. at full speed that was be- that was beautiful. Although he he, he said well, after the game he liked the home run better. Well, yeah. But he said he sure said he did. well he said because it didn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they took him to the train. I mean, they had to take him inside. Apparently, he might have gashed uh, part of his leg or something. But uh, I mean, he went head over tea kettle. He went all the way over the rail and into a bunch of concrete, and that is not comfortable down there. There was obviously nobody to catch him. Um, the interesting thing was like the degree of difficulty about that play was in addition to running towards a sort of a short wall or railing, the sun was in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And so he's able to shield this ball with his glove while he's attacking it and slowing down just enough, you know, had some spatial awareness that he was getting closer, you know, to, to the railing, but never took his eye off the ball and reached, in fact, reached across as he was sort of running there and then did a full flip and came up, uh, you know, and hung on, which was the key thing. And it was no small out. It was a... 
it was a very important out, um, you know, at that time in the game. So, yeah, man, just – and he's normally a center fielder. He's played in San Diego before, but that's, you know, that's not where he typically would play. He's usually in the middle of the field. Um, but they're outfielders. You know, again, that's part of the defense, right? That's part of mm-hmm. why they're able to, to uh, control those runs. Well, and Kiermaier and Margot and their arms too. I mean, you know, they forget that too. Mm-hmm. Is You know, at the game one, you know, Maldonado didn't run – you know, advance from second home because Margot had the ball and, you know, they respected his arm. They weren't going to challenge him. Um, you know, that's part of yep. the defense, too, that, that that often gets not talked about. I mean, you know, everyone knows Kiermaier's great catches, but he's got a great arm, too. So does Margot. And, you know, that, that helps your defense, too. Yeah, the last two games, um, you know, they've had runners in scoring positions and got a base hit and held the runner up at third both times. Mm-hmm. And the Rays did not allow a run. Uh, they managed to get out of it. So... That was pretty impressive, uh, pretty impressive for sure. All right, just to continue a little bit with baseball, some sad news. Man, I'm telling you, 2020 has been the worst year in a lot of people's lives, probably everybody's lives that's, that is alive um, be, for obvious reasons. But we have lost some iconic players from baseball. Joe Morgan, um, the latest uh, that has died, he was uh, 77, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Does that sound right? Yep. Uh, which surprised me. Uh, part of the big red machine, obviously a, a major cog in that big red machine. It's second base, a guy that could hit home runs. We used to have the flapping arm and all that stuff. We used to, when we were kids, you know, we'd try to imitate batting stances, and that was one that was always, you know, quintessentially Joe Morgan with the with the elbow flap. Um, but a tremendous player, and many people probably of the generation above ours will remember him. For 20 years, he was uh, part of the broadcast crew for ESPN mm-hmm. Sunday Night Baseball. He and John Miller were tremendous together. I love listening yeah. to those guys call games. Mm-hmm. Great. I always, yeah. I always thought Joe Morgan was a lot like John Madden calling a game, and 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 mm-hmm. he didn't have mm-hmm. the you know boom 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 you know that part. But the what, stick, yeah. What, what John Madden did so well as a color analyst, and and he's known for the you know boom boom boom, but. What he did so well is is sure. is your your mother, you know, someone who's not a, a huge sports fan or, or football or baseball fan, could could listen to them, you know, tell you about the game and they would learn something. They may not remember it the next day, but as they're watching it, they'll go, right. "Oh, okay." I mean, they they could make it at such mm-hmm. a simple level, but without talking down to the hardcores. And so they well, learned something. Joe, put Joe Morgan was a lot like that. John Madden, John Madden was the, the, the was brilliant with that. As he would he would make a complicated football thing very simple so that anybody could understand. And and so you could enjoy, you know, like are you like, kidding me? Like you could enjoy it. You <laughs> he could would en- make it. Yeah. He, yeah, I know you're right. I'm laughing because he would make a simple thing even simpler. <laughs> yeah. Well, that too. That too. Yes. That, I mean, you know. that was John Madden. Yeah. You, know, you got the ball, and then and then and then see. So here's where you run the ball, and then and then when you run the ball, then somebody's going to try to tackle you. And I mean, you know, that's that's, that's football. It's like you know, I mean, it was that simple. So. Um, but yeah, no, I, it's a great point, and I never thought of John Madden and, and Joe Morgan in that sense. But you're right in in that when you sat down to watch Sunday Night Baseball with him and uh, and uh, it was John Miller, right? Yeah, uh, was it Miller for all yeah, yeah for yeah. all those years? Yep. Uh, it was it was as if, and this is the I think the best announce the best announcers of all time do this. It was as if you're just enjoying the game with them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not they're not talking down to you. They're not talking up to you. Um, you're certainly learning something, but 
you, yeah, he could sit and explain. Enjoying, he could sit and explain why you, why on this count you should do a hit and run in this situation. And yes, like I said, yes. my mom, who's a casual baseball fan, could watch it and go, "Okay, makes sense." Now tomorrow she's not going to remember it, yeah, but right. but it added to her right. enjoyment of the game, and she felt like, "Hey, I'm getting to know this game better." You know, and it it wasn't right. like the announcers talked over the, the the casual fan who doesn't understand it. They're not talking over their heads. They're making it simple for them so they feel included. And Joe Morgan, I thought, did that very well on TV. It's not. It wasn't. Wasn't like Tony Robo predicting the next play. <laughs> uh, here it comes, Jim. Here it comes, Tony. Now he's got to run. Hey, Tony. Yeah, exactly. Jim Nance. He's got to run to the right side, Jim. Here it is, Tony. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, Joe Morgan and uh, and a heck of a player. Of course, that that big red machine. I mean, that was uh, you know years ago. My dad was a scout uh, for the Reds and an area scout and. Uh, recommending scout a lot, of, a lot of guys he coached mm-hmm. some of them uh ended up with the reds back in the day tom hume and some pitchers and mm-hmm. things like that um but you know in the you know in the mid-70s uh i guess going on in almost 80 uh, they dominated baseball and for a while because they trained in tampa their road their their major league games were broadcast on wfla you probably didn't know that but in tampa i did obviously nobody had a team here so mm-hmm. you got you would get them, and then you would sometimes, you know, you could get the Braves. Yep. Um, from from the Superstation or whatever the big yeah, WSB in Atlanta. In Atlanta. Yep. So we would listen to those too. But yeah. One thing people don't realize about Joe too is he's he's one of a very select group. I want to say there's 13 or 14 players in history that won back to back MVP awards, and he's one of them. And if you think of the Big oh Red my. Machine, you would have said it had been Johnny Bench or a Pete Rose, and it was actually Joe Morgan was the only one of that that group to win back to back MVPs. Did it in seventy five, seventy six, the two years that they they won the World Series there. So, but Joe was also a very nice guy. Um, I had the chance to to meet him many times working in Cincinnati and working at WLW. He'd come to the studio, or we'd see him at the ballpark, and just a real nice guy. I mean, you know, just made everyone feel welcome, and it was you know he didn't have that. He wasn't. He didn't big time anybody or anything. He had, always had time for everybody. He was he was a really nice gentleman, and hate you know hate hearing the news of him, his passing. And think about what, what we've lost in baseball. I mean, Tom Seaver, mm-hmm. of course, um, the Hall of Fame uh, Mets pitcher and also pitched for the Reds, obviously, and the, mm-hmm. the White Sox for a while. Um, Bob Gibson, I mean, as good a pitcher as there ever was, uh, a guy that was scary, <laughs> dominant, and um, intimidating. Mm-hmm. Lou Brock also died recently. I mean, it seems, yep. seems like there's just been a, uh, you know, a, a baseball team being formed up there <laughs> in uh, – you know, in the field of dreams, but uh, uh, and a, and a lot of those guys, you know, were nearing the ends of their careers or whatever. I mean, I remember them. I remember watching them play as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's hard to see, you know, those kind of uh, you know former heroes and, and guys you remember as great baseball players. And now, now into their seventies, and Joe Morgan was he was seventy seven, which is still in my mind way too young. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
one more baseball note. I don't know if you saw that the Chicago White Sox uh, let go Rick Renteria, who they make the playoffs this year, but they didn't like the way he handled the bullpen in some situations down the stretch, and they let him go. Second time he's lost a job in Chicago as the team's on the cusp of doing great things. They also fired his his pitching coach who had been there forever, and and I don't know if this is true because I heard it on the radio, so it must be true. There's some talk about maybe the White Sox inquiring whether Tony Larusa, you heard me, Tony Larusa might want to come back. I don't know how old Tony Larusa is uh, to the Chicago Cubs. Why would you be Chicago inquiring of that? You could just ask him before you make the move. Yeah, right. <laughs> how would that even get out? I mean, he's either going to or he's not at this yeah. point. He's not auditioning for the job. It's not like he's going to interview. Yeah, you don't need permission from someone to talk to him. N- no, I can't imagine. Although Dusty Baker is what seventy something years old. Yeah, well, and you know Romeo Crennel is now the oldest NFL coach ever, as he's the interim coach in in Houston uh, for the Texans. As he'll be what seventy three when he takes the field. So, wow, yeah, I didn't realize that. I mean, I know. Obviously, Bruce Arians is 68, and Belichick and uh, Pete Carroll are up there as well. Pete Carroll's 69, I think, yeah. dancing around the locker room the other day. So, uh, wow, Romeo, Romeo Cornell. Speaking of head coaches and interim head coaches, the Atlanta Falcons, I think I predicted this. I have to go back and check the mm-hmm. tape, as they say. Check your sheet. Uh, I was Nostra Thomas. Check your sheet. And that is that the interim coach of the Atlanta Falcons is one Raheem Morris. It was bound to be a former Bucks coach because they have two of them in uh, Dirk Cutter and Raheem. And I thought this made sense on a lot of levels, not the least of which is that um, he's very well liked. Uh, and that's not necessarily a, a requirement to be a head coach or an interim situation. But uh, Raheem's been there for a while consecutively. Obviously, Dirk was there and then went to Tampa as a head coach and came back. But he's also coached on both sides of the ball. I mean, Dan Quinn for a while made him uh, I believe he was the uh, wide receivers coach or running backs coach. Mm-hmm. And he's, I think he's coached offense for a little bit. And, of course, his background is defense. He was a defensive back himself, and that's what he coached with Tampa Bay Bucks before he was going to be a coordinator. And then before he had a chance to do that, they fired John Gruden and made him the head coach. But uh, Raheem takes over. And, you know, again, I, I think this was an Arthur Blank thing. I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't talked to Rich McKay, so I don't know how he feels about it. They fired – Dan Quinn and Thomas Dimitrov, their GM. So they're clearly looking to to sort of rebuild the entire, you know, football organization. However, um, it seems to me that, you know, I, I, I think Raheem, the question was asked of Arthur Blank was, does this mean that he has a chance? You know, and one of the reasons why McKay wouldn't be a guy that was inclined to make a change during the season, there's a couple of them. One, We've talked about this before. As soon as you fire a head coach, particularly this early, but as soon as you fire a head coach, you're not just firing the head coach in all probability. You're usually, it usually means his entire staff is gone. So what do guys start doing? The head coach is fired, and they start looking for jobs. Instead of spending all the time on game planning and coaching, they're looking to hook up and get their next job next year. They've got kids in school, families, wives, all that. They're worried about next year as soon as you fire that guy. Um, and so, you know, the other thing that happens is, and this may happen in this case, and Arthur Blank said, Hey, if it does, that's fine. You make the interim coach a candidate for a job that maybe he would normally not be a candidate at all. Uh, in other words, if we were starting from scratch and, and they didn't have Dan Quinn, they had nobody, 
and it was the end of the year instead of the the early you know first quarter, would Raheem Morris even be a consideration? The answer is no, most likely not against the field of whatever coaches are out there, Eric Bieniemy or whoever you're talking about. Um, and I'm not saying he's not worthy because I, I think he deserves another shot, but um, these are the things that go through the minds of people who make those decisions and why, mm-hmm. especially this early, we've seen now, you know, we've seen it happen to Bill O'Brien in Houston. Now we've seen it happen to Dan Quinn. And I get it, but they're, you know, they're looking for an entire, you know, an entire new uh, football operations uh, probably with a new GM, a new head coach, all of that, and they'll come in and evaluate the team. And you may see a lot of changes, including who knows how long, you know, Matt Ryan. I mean, heck, you're 0-5. You might end up, you know, with the number one overall pick in the draft. So, um, you know, that's that's possible as well. So we'll have to see where all that goes. But Blank did say, you know, they asked him, hey, could he be, could Raheem be on the, you know, on the short list or somebody that you would consider for the head coaching job permanently? And he goes, yeah, you know. If he wins 11 games, I'm thinking, wait a minute, they haven't won any games. Um, I don't think that was a, a requirement, by the way, but uh, it was funny when he said it, and then I thought immediately of the race to race to 10 that Raheem uh, drew up back in 2010. He, he came in and he said, what's well, a race to 10? Usually you win 10 games, you're in the playoffs. And so they won 10 games, and they missed the playoffs. <laughs> and the greatest line that Raheem did, gave at the end of the season, he goes, I guess I should have said it was a race to 11. <laughs> Because they they would have made it with eleven wins, he got his ten wins, but he didn't get the postseason. And if you can think about that, that was two thousand and ten, right? Raheem Morris, uh, when he took over in uh, for John Gruden in two thousand and would have been nine, um, he was only thirty two years old. He was the youngest coach in the NFL, thirty two. Had no idea what he was stepping into, um, and it's a heady business, and it's one one that uh, you can get. You know, you can get tossed like like you're in the waves a little bit. You can get rocked back and forth, especially when you don't have, you know, a ton of clout. And nobody expected Raheem to be a head coach, and boom, there he was. Um, and he, and like I said, his second year, he managed to win 10 games. They fired both coordinators after the first year. It was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And then they started 4-2 and two the next year in 2011, and the wheels came off over in London. I was there for that. And uh, they managed to lose after starting 4-2. and two. They, lost, they lost 10 in a row. Um, that was grim. That was one of the grim, more grim periods of, of Bucks football. Um, but Raheem has grown up a lot, and I, I think this time around, interim, not interim, whatever, um, he's going to do a much better job just because he's in a different part of his different stage of his life, has a lot more experience. Um, certainly, you know, uh, being close to to the head coaching job there as the assistant head coach and all of that. So I wish him well. I mean, it's going to be fun to see him again when they play, you know, play the Bucks twice. But, um, yeah, so Ronnie well, Morse. Uh, you can't do an in. interim coach if you don't think that they have a legit shot at the, the gig, especially with this much to go in the season. If you did it for the last game or two, it's one thing. You know, you think back right. to think back to USC when they made Ed Orgeron the interim mm-hmm. coach. Yeah. And then he mm-hmm. was wildly successful. The fan base wanted him. And then you decide not to hire him and go somewhere else. And it turns out Ed Orgeron goes to LSU, wins national titles, and USC hasn't done anything since. And, you know, yeah. you if you're going to give a guy a 10-, 11-week audition to, to for that mm-hmm. job, you have to be willing to say he is a candidate. Now, it doesn't mean you have to hire him, right. but, you know, otherwise you don't right. make the move. I mean, you know, unless unless you just absolutely have to because of something internally in the team. Um, you know, so you yeah, have I, to. I think the reason you do it, 
I mean, fan base is one thing, mm-hmm. but there's no fans. But so take that out of the equation. I well, think but the they're still watching. They're, they're still buying your apparel. They'll still. I mean, you still yeah, have. No, you, you got to show them. that you yeah. care. You got to care about the product. Yeah, you got to care about the product. And, and the other thing is, and I don't know this because, it, but it, but it supposedly it happened in Houston. When you lose the football team, mm-hmm. when those guys stop playing hard for you, when they start making business decisions and they don't like anything you do, and they let you know it, and it's there's there's a real you know, sort of schism or conflict um, in the, the, it's a bad building because of that. And they know he's a, you know, whoever is in charge is a lame duck and they're not going to bring him back. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when sometimes you have to make the change because you yes. can't, you cannot let players sort of, um, you know, not follow the head coach. There has, there has to be, mm-hmm. you know, control and there has to be, um, you know, guys wanting to go out there and lay it on the line for each other primarily, but also, believe in what the coach is doing to help them succeed and once once that locker room is gone it's it's it's, it's impossible to get it back right i th- i think that happened in houston we heard about the, the you mm-hmm. know the, on the field on practice altercations with um jj watt and you know bill o'brien so yeah I, th- I think in, in atlanta i think if if you were going to go with someone if you if you knew you wanted wholesale changes and, and didn't want to give anybody a chance i think dirk cutter would have become the interim coach because i i, mm-hmm. I, I think you could sit there and put him as interim coach to play out the season and, and say, look, you know, he's, he's two years removed from a stint in Tampa where he didn't, you know, it didn't work out very well. It's easy to say we're going to go a different right. direction, even if he wins half the games going forward, let's say. Where right. Raheem, right. because he's a decade removed from that and has worked his way back and, and through Washington and Atlanta and all this and, and, is, and is a legit head coaching candidate again in many circles and in many people's right. minds – if you're going to give him this shot, mm-hmm. then then part of it is he does have a shot at getting this job full time. Now I don't know if you know if it has to be eleven and zero, or if it you know if seven and three four and they're doing great or whatever. Even if it's you know it could be four and seven, but you're seeing the the team completely change and turn around and respond and, and this, you know, if if you if you weren't going to give if the if the internal candidate didn't have a shot, then I think Dirk Cutter would become the interim coach. I think Arthur Blank and. Rich McKay are saying Raheem Morris has a shot at this job, and we're going to let him audition for it. Yeah, no, he's he's certainly he's got the best look, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. possessions being nine tenths of the law, whatever they say, and and I think it's a it's a great opportunity for him, regardless of whether he he becomes a head coach here, or really he's like anything. You're 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 in that role, right? You have that mm-hmm. visibility, you have that seat. So when you have that voice and that visibility, you're you're still one of thirty two, and you're, you know, you have a chance to, to every time you go out there to impress some other owner who might not like his head coach and might be making changes at the end of his season. And if he sees you whip their tail and he likes the way his, your players, you know, are, are, are performing and are they're prepared, then that's a great audition for you. And, and I always thought, you know, that Ross should get another shot. I mean, he, mm-hmm. like I said, there was a lot of things. Look, that organization was, <laughs> don't need to tell you, it was uh, never in great shape. Uh, back in the day, and and in fact, in many ways, it got worse. But um, but like I said, he's at a different point in his career, and uh, I think he's I think he's going to do good. I mean, I, I, again, I haven't watched Atlanta. I don't know. I know they've blown a lot of leads. I know they didn't run the ball when they probably should have. Um, they made some changes on the defensive side as well, and so he's able to move some guys around. But um, yeah, other people will watch what Raheem does, and if he does well, if he doesn't get the job. In Atlanta, you know, maybe it uh, it certainly elevates 
you know, his visibility and maybe they, they come around and, um, and somebody else interviews him, which would, which would be great. Speaking of football, um, pretty funny, uh, little post that, uh, you know, Tom Brady does a good job or his people do whoever does it on social media between Twitter and Instagram and things like this. Uh, of course, and you normally he's, he's, you know, pushing his products and TB12 and various things, water bottles, whatever, uh, alkaline water, all that stuff. But, in this instance, you know, since last Thursday night when we asked him twice when he put over the four fingers if he knew it was fourth down and he never really answered the question. He didn't he didn't deny it, but he, he just didn't answer it. He just talked about, well, you know, I was probably shouldn't have taken a shot down the field and he just blocked and bridged it, which is fine. Um, but it's obvious when a guy looks at the sideline quizzically after the final pass of the game drops and, and he puts up four fingers – He's not telling you how many wins that the Chicago Bears had at that point. <laughs> um, he's telling you he it was fourth down. That was fourth down. So, you know, and he's taking a good bit of grief for that, and he just really haven't hasn't addressed it well. So he goes on Twitter, and LeBron James, of course, you know, polishes off the Miami Heat to win his fourth NBA title. And so he went on there and sort of uh, – you know, took took what was a picture of him holding up the four fingers and superimposed LeBron's head on it. And, and yeah, I had to look at it twice. I was like, "What is this?" But uh, it's really, it's really funny because he he said, um, "Congrats to my brother at King James on winning his fourth championship. Not bad for a washed up old guy." <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, it's a nice way to handle it when you think about it. It's self-deprecating. He's not saying, yeah, I was an idiot, but he's saying, yeah, I was probably an idiot. You know, I was taking a lot of grief for this. And um, I don't know what he'll say when he talks again about it Thursday. I imagine somebody will ask him, maybe me, um, maybe not. But, um, you know, it, uh, it, it, was, it was fun. It was something that was interesting to, uh, you know, to sort of watch him, um, you know, poke fun at himself as much as anything else. All right, so we've got a game three, a big game three, of course, in the American League Championship Series. Seven days, seven games is the way it's going to go. Ryan Yarbrough on the mound for the Rays. Um, so you can expect uh, the bullpen to be probably active in that one as well if they can get in or out of the fifth inning. And they'll go for win number three. If they can get up 3-0, um, they'd certainly feel pretty good about their chances, as they do already, I'm sure, about going to the World Series. It's a late start, too, so it's an 8.37 start on TBS. So this is the latest game of the series. I think Saturday would be that late as well. Wow. Tomorrow, wow. Wednesday will be 8.07, and then it's, Thursday's a 4 o'clock, Friday's a 5 o'clock. I mean, it, it's, the time's – like, there's no consistent game. I think there's five different game times for this series. So, But 8.37 tonight, late one on TBS. They do know it's a school night, right? Does anybody tell them it's a school night? Yeah, but everyone's e-learning, right? We got school the next day. No. <laughs> that would be worse in some ways. We gotta get them up at like six in the morning. I mean, uh, yeah, that's that's just. I'm not getting much sleep. The Rays and the Lightning success. People don't realize what we pay for this podcast <laughs> on our personal lives. <laughs> we are just not sleeping, folks. So if it's a little punchy, if it's not as good as you think it should be, yeah. that's okay. When we misuse words like we did last night in the in the, po- the podcast, you know that's why it's very late when we do this. So. All right, well, folks, uh, just remember, too, if uh, you've got a uh, a party going on, and who doesn't right now, right, with the Rays playing in the in the uh, American League Championship Series, you know who's got the best party platters for your catering in this city, in Tampa Bay, in the region? 
What's Mr. Empanada? You know, and what what's an empanada? Well, look, just take your favorite foods, place them inside a pocket of this gorgeous homemade dough. It's cooked perfectly until it's golden brown and just piping hot. And the empanadas are just a fresh twist on some old favorites. You can order delicious menu items made from scratch, including soup, salads, and Cuban sandwiches online at MrEmpanada.com or call any one of their seven convenient locations in Tampa Bay where Latin food, quality, and service meet. It's Mr. Empanada. For Steve Erstink, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.